Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. That's the text for this morning. The sermon title is Treasures Here or Treasures There. Where will you invest, friends? Treasures here or treasures there? After World War I, amateur archaeologist Howard Carter and wealthy antiques collector George Herbert began an extensive search in the searing heat of Egypt's Valley of the Kings for the burial tomb of King Tutankhamun, King Tut. After digging through tons of earth without a find, Carter's excavation crew unearthed a step on November 4th, 1922 that presumably led to an unknown tomb. Frantically, Carter, in his excitement, called back notified Herbert, who rushed to Egypt, and on November 23rd, they broke through the mud-brick door, which had been sealed and untouched for more than 3,000 years. As they peered down the dark hallway, there was evidence that robbers had actually entered the structure at some point, and the archaeologists feared that their their discovery had been discovered previously and potentially was just another tomb that had already been pillaged. However, just a couple of days later, November 26, they broke through another door, and as Carter leaned in with a candle to take a look, Herbert leaned behind him and said, can you see anything? And Carter said, yes, I see wonderful things. What they were peering into was the antechamber of King Tut's tomb, which again was gloriously untouched for almost 3,000 years. The dusty floor still showed the footprints of the tomb builders uh, who who had not laid foot there uh, in, in years. Apparently the robbers who had broken into King Tut's tomb had done so after it was already completed, and they were caught sometime in the middle of it. They didn't get a chance to take anything. There wasn't any serious damage that was done there. And so uh, thus began a monumental excavation process in which Carter carefully explored the four-room tomb. And as he did, he uncovered an, an incredible collection of treasure. In addition to numerous pieces of jewelry and gold, there were statues and furniture and clothes and chariots and weapons and numerous other ornate treasures. But the most splendid find of all was a stone sarcophagus containing three coffins nested within each other. Inside the final coffin, made out of solid gold, was the mummified body of the boy king, Tutankhamun, preserved for over 3,200 years. Most of these treasures that were unearthed are now housed in Egypt at the Cairo Museum, and they circle the globe from time to time on exhibition. What's the tragedy here, you ask? There's a great tragedy here. The tragedy is that all the wealth and all the vast treasure presumed to be taken into the afterlife was all left behind. It all left. It was all left untouched, sitting in the darkness of an underground chamber. You've heard the familiar old adage, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's a lie. He who dies with the most toys still dies, and he doesn't take any of his toys with him. Friends, the question is, treasures here or treasures there? Where will you invest? That's the context of our text for this morning. That's the question that Jesus has for us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Let's turn our attention to our text. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability this morning. Matthew, recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning. I'll be heavy on the front end. Here's point number one if you're taking notes. would encourage you to do so. Hold lightly to what is temporal. Hold lightly or hold loosely to that which is temporal. Let me direct your attention to verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. There's actually a play on words here in the Koine Greek, in the original language. The original text says, do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth. We see the same word repeated a couple of times there. I was thinking about this in my study this week as I was preparing the message. We are so easily enticed and seduced by the material world. We are so easily enticed by the material world. I mean, just just listen here for a moment. By the age of 20, most Americans have seen somewhere in the ballpark of a million commercials. In America, more money is spent every year somewhere in the ballpark of $100 billion on fashion accessories like shoes and jewelry and watches than on college tuition. The amount Americans spend in a single week is more than half of the total they give to churches in an entire year. Nearly half the world's toys reside in America. You ever considered that? Despite making up just over 3% of the global population of children, American kids consume over 40% of the world's toys. It begins young. Parents, be careful. Be careful that we're not encouraging materialism in our children. Homes in the U.S. on average contain more televisions than they do people. And those televisions run somewhere in the ballpark of 8 hours, 14 minutes a day, according to USA Today. The the United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities, which is the fastest growing segment of the commercial commercial real estate industry in the past four decades. Okay, Just store it here, little garages, you can open the door, push all your belongings in and lock it for supposedly a rainy day or when you might need it again, Who, who knows what. Are there legitimate reasons for storage? Absolutely, there are. But just track with me for a second here. The U.S. has upward of 50,000 of these types of facilities. Currently, there is 7.3 square feet of self-storage space for every man, woman, and child in the nation. As a result, it's physically possible that every American, every single American, every man, woman, and child could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing in the United States. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods, in other words, items that they do not need. Friends, we are easily enticed by the material world. And we don't really like to be called materialists, so we've changed the, the lingo a little bit. Now we just call ourselves consumerists. Sounds a little bit easier to swallow. It's a little little bit easier to palate that. And so what's the antidote? If If we are so easily enticed, if we are eaten up literally by materialism and consumerism, then what's the antidote to that? What's the answer? Well, I think the answer is that we must see something of the greatness of God. You see, friends, if we don't see the greatness of God, then the things that money can buy will become very, very exciting to us. Track with me for a moment here. If you can't see the sun, 
then you'd be impressed with a streetlight. If you never felt thunder and lightning, then you'd be impressed with fireworks. Likewise, if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. I think the antidote, friends, is that we have to see the greatness of God and that it has to tower over, it has to loom over the temporary pleasures and treasures of the world in which we live, which we will all one day leave behind. Friends, just look around for a minute. I mean, just turn to your right, turn to your left, gaze up here, okay, look up. I mean, we got millions of dollars invested in lighting and sound and boxes and microphones and, and in AV material and in clothes, purses that line the floor, shoes, watches, jewelry, haircuts. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And here's the reality. We'll take none of it with us. Everything you see, everything that fills your eye at this moment is temporary and will stay here. It'll stay here. Friends, we've got to be consumed with the greatness of our God if the material pleasures and treasures of this world are to grow strangely dim. Well, let me say something about what Jesus is not condemning here in the text. I mean, Jesus tells us here, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Literally, do not treasure for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What isn't Jesus condemning here? There is something he's condemning. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But what isn't Jesus condemning in the text? Well, I would submit to you that Jesus is not condemning the having of things. Jesus is not condemning in any way the, 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 the having or the, the, the possessing of possessions. Okay? Even wealth in and of itself is not evil. It's important to note that the Bible nowhere teaches that money in itself or the owning of possessions is evil. It's not the money or the possessions that are at fault, friends. It's the men and women who use them that are at fault. It's not wrong to possess things, but it is wrong for things to possess you and me. In other words, that you would seek to find your security in things, that you would seek to find your fulfillment and your, your uh, significance and your identity in the little trinkets of this world. Before God created man and woman, he created a vast world of pleasant and useful things for them. They were meant for man's use and for man to enjoy in a very constructive edifying and joyful way. But when sin entered into the world, those things that God had created that are good in and of themselves, that were helpful for him, came to usurp a place in his heart and in ours as well, in which they were never meant to occupy. It's the love of stuff, the accumulating of things, seeking to find my purpose, my fulfillment, my security, my happiness in the things of earth, my identity and the things of earth. So when it comes to our money and our material possessions, I would submit to you that the true solution doesn't reside in some kind of monastic withdrawal. It doesn't mean that you have to go become a monk somewhere and sit on a pole for the rest of your life and, and, and debase yourself and have nothing. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, rather, I think the answer lies in having a proper understanding and a proper use of the good things that God has provided for us. Jesus isn't condemning wealth. He's warning against the destructive lure of becoming preoccupied and consumed with it. 
Jesus is not condemning personal possessions. He's not, he's not condemning having things. Neither is Jesus condemning making provision for the future. That's not on Jesus' radar here. Jesus isn't condemning saving for a rainy day here in our text. As a matter of fact, Solomon, wise Solomon, speaks of the wisdom of the ant in Proverbs chapter 6. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief and no officer or no rulers, she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Jesus is not condemning saving for a rainy day. Having a bank account... And and adding to that bank account is not intrinsically evil. Now, if we're attaching our purpose, fulfillment, security, worth, value to it, then it is. It has crossed the line from being a good thing that God has provided, even a good thing that God can use to further his kingdom and his glory, into becoming a thing that has seduced us into sin. But making provision for the future, that's that's not sinful. Having an IRA or a retirement, that's that's not sinful. That's not on Jesus' radar when he says, don't store up for yourselves. Literally, don't treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then lastly, Jesus is not condemning the the enjoying of good gifts. Again, God has given us every good thing to enjoy with thanksgiving. Paul wrote to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which let me pause right there, every single one of us without exception are rich in this present age. By the rest of the world's standards, we are mega, mega rich. Okay? Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's what Jesus is condemning. It's, he's condemning the fact that we would set our hopes on uncertain things. Paul goes on and he tells Timothy, but tell them to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, that is us, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus is not condemning in our text having things. Jesus is not condemning making provision for the future and he is not condemning enjoying God's good gifts. Let's talk for a moment then about the foolishness of laying up treasures on earth. If Jesus isn't condemning having possessions, saving for a rainy day, or enjoying the good gifts that God has provided, then what is he condemning in verse 19? Well, the two words laying up, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves. Your translation may say, do not store up for yourselves. Those two little words carry the idea of stacking something or laying it out horizontally as one would stack coins, okay? What Jesus is condemning here in verse 19 is the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance or the stockpiling of his or her possessions. Are you just stacking things up, hoping that they will infuse you in some way with worth or dignity or value or purpose or security or fulfillment? If so, then you've bought into the materialistic lie of this world that things will bring you happiness, but you can't take any of it with you. You can't take any of it with you. You see, in Jesus' day, moths would get into people's clothes. Insects, mice, and rats would, would destroy and devour fields and stored up grain. Worms would take whatever they put underground, and thieves would break into homes and steal what they kept there. Literally, nothing was safe in the ancient world. Nothing was safe in the ancient world. And so what Jesus does here is he uses three very well-understood illustrations, would have been much more 
well understood to a Palestinian in Jesus' day, but they make great sense for us too. They help us to see the futility of selfishly hoarding things that we cannot take out of this world. First of all, Jesus says, hey friends, moths destroy. Moths destroy. What's he speaking of there? Well, Jesus is most likely referring to the ornate clothing and the expensive tapestries uh, that were very pervasive in Jesus' day. I mean, in ancient Palestinian culture, a person's clothing served as a display of prominence. I mean, oftentimes, a person's clothing, depending on where they ranked on the socioeconomic scale, uh, would even be woven together or would have been sewn together uh, with threads of gold. Very expensive, very costly. And we see the draw towards clothing in the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, right? I mean, here after battle, he, he disobeys God, and his, his eye is fixed on a beautiful Babylonian garment, so tempting that he disobeyed God by taking it. And there were drastic consequences. I mean, even the finest garments are subject to the, the devastation of moths, Jesus says. And Achan paid dearly. He paid for his life. Jesus says, what you, what you value, what you treasure, your clothing... It's subject to a small little critter like the moth that will come in and ravage it. Jesus goes on and he says, hey guys, rust destroys. Moths destroy, but rust destroys as well. The noun that's translated rust in your Bible there, it's the Greek word brosis. We oftentimes think of rust in terms of how it affects metal, right? It's corrosive. But it can also refer to other kinds of decay and destruction. The word brosis in the Koine Greek literally means eating, which that would make sense of, of uh, rust, correct? I mean, rust eats the, the metal. It feeds, it feeds on the metal that it's on. That's literally what the word means there. When Jesus says rust destroys, he's talking about something that eats something else. And while we would certainly, this would be certainly be true of corrosion, uh, some older commentators have in view here the picture of a farm, which would have been very prevalent in Jesus' day, both its supplies and its products being the farm, seeing erosion, corrosion, being fouled or destroyed by worms, devouring insects, mice, or rats. And you can store your grain up all day long, but it's subject to all the vermin of the ground. Rust destroys. The third illustration that Jesus gives here, he says, thieves break in and steal. You see, even valuables that can't be consumed by pestilence or are not subject to decay aren't protected from being stolen. See, in Jesus' day, there weren't local banks on every corner like there are here in Cape Girardeau where a person could, could securely store or house temporarily their money or their valuables. Furthermore, in Palestinian homes, that's Jesus' day here, uh, most of them were made of some form of mud brick. And therefore, they, they were easily broken into with any sharp object. Matter of fact, the, uh, the words in your Bible there, thieves, break in. Those two words, break in, literally means to penetrate by digging through. Burglars in Jesus' day were called mud diggers. Mud diggers. Any sharp object could be used to penetrate right through the wall of your home. Nothing was secure. No, no safes. No safety deposit boxes. I mean, any, any object with a point on it could be used to get into your home and to steal your valuables. Knowing how valuable their possessions were, or, or sorry, how vulnerable, rather, their possessions were in their homes, individuals in Jesus' day would oftentimes hide their valuables in the ground. 
that, that brings a little bit of new meaning maybe to Matthew 13, 44, right? The man found a treasure where? Hidden in a field. And when he did, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's right, because that was a common thing in Jesus' day. People didn't keep things in their home because it was very vulnerable. And so they would go, go dig a hole in the ground somewhere and they would bury their items. For us moderns, you know, we, we enjoy luxuries like cedar closets and mothballs. We're not so worried about the things that, that would have plagued uh, the, the, the mind of those in Jesus' day. For us moderns, we try to protect our treasure with things like insecticides and rat poison and mouse traps and rust-proof paint and burglar alarms. Though our treasure may not be subject to the same means of loss, our valuables oftentimes disintegrate through inflation or devaluation or economic slump. I mean, we can wake up tomorrow morning and the stock market can be gone. Everything that you have worked hard to save up for a rainy day, everything that you have been putting away for retirement can be gone in an instant. And so we may not be subject to the same means of loss necessarily. We may not be uh, all, all concerned about the little moth. We may not be all concerned about rust or about critters getting into our food. We'll just go to Walmart and get some more because we're very rich. We may not be worried about thieves breaking in and stealing our stuff because it's behind plates and plates and plates and plates and plates of steel. But our stuff is no more protected than their stuff was in their own day. Friends, when you die and when I die, we will take out of this world exactly what we brought in. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Job was right when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Therefore, even if moths and rust and thieves spare your goods for the duration of your life, it is in vain to store up anything that only has value for this lifetime. It's foolishness. It's futility to store up for yourselves that which only has value in this very short life. It's poor bargaining to exchange that which is eternal for that which is temporal regardless of how much tinsel is used to make the temporal look more attractive. And friends, that's, that's what our consumer-driven world does. It just tries to make the temporary much more attractive by dressing it up with various pieces of tinsel and trying to convince you that you need it, you have to have it, you cannot live without it. Why? Because your purpose is dependent upon it. Your fulfillment is dependent upon it. Your security is dependent upon it. Your meaning and your value are dependent upon it. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry. Accumulate and have. Store up for yourselves. Remember the story, Jesus comes to the man, the farmer, who said, you know, I've been storing up for a long time now, and I have lots of grain uh, in reserves. And Jesus says, you foolish man, you stored up in vain. Do you not know that your very life will be demanded of you this night? And then who will get your possessions? Who will divide your spoils? Somebody will, but guess what? They're checking out sometime soon as well. It all stays here. It all stays here, friends. It's worth noting that although, again, we are very rich by the world's standards, you don't have to be wealthy to store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You don't have to have a bank account with six figures on it 
to be considered wealthy and to store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You can have the clothes on your back and a few dollars in your hand and still be eaten up by the world's treasures. I want you to turn for just a second with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Again, Solomon gives us some great wisdom here. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verses 10 through 15. Here's what I want to do. Solomon gives us some wonderful words of wisdom concerning the stuff that often tethers our hearts to this earth. And so I want to look at these verses here. uh, And then I want to make a a summary statement uh, about what Solomon is telling us here. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. Look at the first phrase in in verse 10. Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I think there's a principle that we can glean from this short little phrase, friends. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. What's the principle? The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you want. Look at the second phrase there in verse 10. Solomon goes on and he says, Nor he who loves abundance with its income. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. What's the principle from that second little statement there? I think it's this. The more you have, the less satisfied you'll be. The more you have, the less satisfied you'll be. Look at verse 11. Solomon writes, When good things increase, those who consume them increase. Let's stop right there. What's the principle? The principle is this, the more you have, the more people will come after it. The more you have, the more people will come after it. Look at the rest of verse 11. So what advantage to their owners, what advantage is it to their owners except to look on? Except to look on. What's the principle here? The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. All you can do is look on while others come after it. It does you no good. Look at verse 12. Solomon writes, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. What's the principle here? The more you have, the more you have to worry about. You'll be well acquainted with the ceiling above your bed because you will lay there, lay there restless. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Look at verse 13. Solomon writes, There's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. What's the principle here? The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Look at verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he fathered a son... Then there was nothing to support him. What's the principle here? The more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And then lastly, look at verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. What's the principle here? The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. 
more you have, the more you'll want. The more you have, the less satisfied you'll be. The more you have, the more people will come after it. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more hurt you can inflict upon yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you have to leave behind. Fleeting, friends. Fleeting. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Don't trade heavenly treasure for earthly trinkets. Again, just look around you. Look to your right and look to your left. Every object you see is confined to this world. None of it, none of it is going out. Hold loosely to what is temporal. Point number two on your outline is this. Hold tightly. It's just the converse. Hold tightly then to what is eternal. Get a firm grasp on that which is eternal. Look at verse 20. Jesus says this. He says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I mean, what Jesus is telling us here is that our treasures on earth, verse 19, are insecure. Our treasures in heaven, they are secure. They're incorruptible. They perish not. Jesus tells us to lay up for ourselves or to treasure up for ourselves treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth where they're not susceptible to the things that would destroy them or seek to steal them. Now, what isn't Jesus teaching here? What isn't Jesus teaching? I think it's important oftentimes when we study our Bibles to look at the contrast uh, that appears and to ask ourselves good questions. Uh, If you want to be a good student of the Bible, uh, learn to be a good question asker as you're studying the Bible. And the question I want to ask here is, what isn't Jesus teaching from verse 20? When he says, treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. I think Jesus... Uh, I know Jesus, I don't think. I know Jesus is not teaching this. He's not teaching that we can earn our salvation. If we would just begin stockpiling things in heaven or, or just begin adding things to the account balance of heaven, so to speak, not to the Bank of America, but to the Bank of Heaven, then, then we'll have treasures. This verse, and the reason I say that is because this verse, verse 20 here, has been used as an argument by some for the fact that we can earn our salvation, that we can earn heavenly treasure. Jesus isn't teaching the merit of of treasury or the treasury of merits as taught by the, the Catholic Church. This is a false, unbiblical doctrine that espouses that a person can accumulate credit on an account in heaven by their good deeds on which they can draw from later if their bad deeds necessitate it. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's not teaching a scale system in verse 20. That doctrine would fly in the face of the gospel of grace which Jesus taught. So then what does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven? What does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven? What is this treasure in heaven that Jesus speaks about here? Well, he doesn't give us a a ton of great detail. Jesus does not explain in great detail. But we may say that to lay up treasure in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. Laying up treasure in heaven, though Jesus is not super specific. He doesn't give us a list here. We might rightly say that laying up treasure 
in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. I mean, laying up treasure in heaven could refer to things like growing in Christ-like character. It could be the use of your money, your resources, for the sake of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. I mean, that, that has, that, that's an investment that has dividends that are everlasting. Growing in faith, growing in the knowledge of Christ. Again, sharing Christ with others. We want to be all about sharing the gospel with the nations in our neighborhoods and among the next generation here at the chapel. That, that is an investment that has eternal rewards, eternal dividends. You see, all these are temporal activities, but they all have eternal consequences. See, no, no moth can destroy things like this. No pestilence, no mice, no rats can devour them. No worms have access to them, and they can't be stolen by thieves. You see, treasures in heaven, unlike treasures on earth, are, again, secure. Treasures in heaven, treasures that are laid up there, treasures that are treasured there, need no precautionary measures to protect them, no insurance to cover loss. They're indestructible. It means that we would use all that we have for the glory of God. If things aren't intrinsically evil, how are you using those things? That makes the difference as to whether it's a, an earthly investment or a heavenly investment, a temporal investment or an eternal investment. How are you using the good things that God has entrusted to you? You are merely a steward. You ever considered that? Surely you have. We own nothing. We own nothing. We are simply the stewards of what God has temporarily entrusted to us. And friends, let me just remind you, everything that God entrusts to us, we'll give an account for one day. We'll give an account for what we did with it, right? Did, did we multiply the few coins and, and use the investment wisely, or did we hide it and not, not gain any interest on what was given to us? And stories like that are all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few treasure principles here. First of all, again, God owns everything, which means by implication that you and I are simply stewards. God owns everything. That's your money, your intellect, your education, your home, and every other material possession, your position, your status, your personality. All of these things belong to God. They do not belong to us. They're on loan to us. Everything you have, you are merely a steward of. Everything, everything, everything belongs to God. Again, I've said this before, that'll change the way that you think about putting a dollar into a Coke machine. Not that that's wrong by any means, but it's that you would think differently about how you invest what God has entrusted to you to steward. Right? Is it sinful to buy a Coke? It's not. Could it be? It could be. Motivation. The heart would be the determining factor there. But God owns everything. I'm simply a steward of what God has entrusted to me. I'm therefore to use everything that God has entrusted to me in service to Him and for His glory. I was reminded of the old hymn, Take My Life. Here's some familiar words to you. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. God owns everything. That's treasure principle number one. Number two, 
Heaven, not earth, is your home. Friends, we forget that. Many of us will forget that principle before we ever walk out the doors this morning. Heaven, not earth, is your home. This earth is a temporary residence. You and I, if we know Christ savingly, we're just passing through. I mean, Peter exhorts us. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's materialism. That's consumerism. Which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 We must remind ourselves every day that this day is but a mile marker and that I'm but passing through. I'm on my way. I'm journeying forward towards my heavenly home. Each day, I'm merely pitching my tent a day's mark nearer to the place where my citizenship resides. We forget that. And what happens when we forget that we're simply every day pitching our tent one day nearer to the place where our heavenly citizenship resides? We begin to think we reside here. And we grow attached to the things of earth instead of the things of heaven. Things which are not necessarily intrinsically evil or sinful take a place in our heart they were never meant to take and a place that they were never meant to be. Like Abraham, Hebrews chapter 11, we must be looking for the city which, uh, which has its foundations and its architect and its builder, builder are God. We're to be looking for another city, not this city. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. That's the greatness of God that we started with, right? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We've got to be consumed with a vision of something greater than the stuff of earth. God owns everything. You're simply a steward. Heaven, not earth, is your home. Here's the third and last treasure principle for you here. God prospers you, and he prospers me. Not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. God prospers you. He's gracious to you. He gives you many good gifts that you and I do not deserve. And he doesn't give us those things to necessarily raise our standard of of living. He does it so that we would raise our standard of giving. You see, when we come to the end of life, the question will be, uh, how much have you given, not how much have you gotten? Let that soak in for a moment. The question that we will have to answer is not, how much have you gotten, but rather, how much have you given? You see, the more you give, the less attached to the things of earth you'll be. The more you give, the less attached, the less white-knuckled to the things of earth you and I will be. It's a simple matter of physics. Think with me here for just a moment. The greater the mass of something, the greater the hold that that mass exerts. Okay? So the things we own, If they become greater in their total mass, they'll begin to grip us, setting us in orbit around them until finally comes a point where we're sucked in just like a black hole. We're sucked into the things of earth by just amassing stuff. You see, we think we own our possessions, but all too often they own us. Every time we buy or every time we accumulate, it's one more thing to think about. It's one more thing to talk about. It's one more thing to have to clean, to repair, to rearrange, to fret over, or to replace when it goes bad. I mean, everything we purchase. God prospers you not to raise your standard of living. God gives to you so that you can turn around and I can turn around and give to others. Number three on your outline. 
is this. Your heart will follow your treasure. Your heart will follow your treasure. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus gives us an incredible, I almost hate to call it an axiom for life because that seems to make it trite. But that's kind of what it is here. This is an axiom for life when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, you can take it to the bank. It's as good as gold every single day. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Let's talk about the heart for just a moment here, friends. Hearts, the Greek word cardia. And it means heart, but figuratively it speaks about your thoughts or your feelings. It actually carries the idea of that which is in the middle. Okay? That's why we speak about the heart biblically as, as being the, the inner man or the, the inner woman, the core or the center or the middle of who you are. That is your heart. That's the way the Bible speaks about your heart. The inner man or the inner woman. It's the core of who you are. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your total being will be also. What Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there your whole person will be. Your total person will be also. Like steel to a magnet, the core of who you are, your whole self, will be found wherever your treasure is found. You ever seen one of those magnets in a junkyard? Picks up a car, it's like, and just picks a couple thousand pound, three thousand pound vehicle off the ground. Just boom. It's attractive. Attractive. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Your heart will follow your treasure. Just like steel to a magnet. It's important to note here that Jesus isn't saying that if we just put our treasure in the right place, our heart will then be in the right place. Think about that for a moment. Jesus isn't saying here in verse 21 that if you'll just put your treasure in the right place, then your heart will be in the right place. Here's why I say that. Because the location of your treasure indicates where your heart already is. You see, spiritual problems are always heart problems. The location of your treasure tells where your heart already is. Sinful acts come from a sinful heart, just as righteous acts come from a righteous heart. That's why Solomon wisely encourages us. Proverbs 4.23, probably a familiar text to you. If you don't have Proverbs 4.23, memorize it. Here it is. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart. Keep an eye on your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. The NIV translates it this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. Friends, consider this for just a moment. You will move towards whatever you fix your eyes on. You will move in the direction of whatever you fix your eyes on. About four years ago, we purchased for Caden, my now 10-year-old son, a bicycle, a little stunt bicycle. We purchased it secondhand from a family that lived across the street. Their son had outgrown it. And this was a way cool bicycle. As a matter of fact, it's sitting in my garage today. I mean, it's kind of pearly white, and it's got really cool handlebars on it and, 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 and really cool features. One of the really cool features about this bike is that it has these stunt pegs in the front and in the rear with which you can dismount yourself from the seat. Why anyone in their right mind would do that, I'm uncertain. 
but you can kind of hang out on those pegs, be it in front of your handlebars or behind your back wheel. But in any way, in any event, it didn't mean much to Caden at the time, but the bike that we had him was well-equipped with stunt things. One afternoon, we had run some errands, and late in the afternoon, uh, we had returned home, and Caden hopped out of the car and got on his new bicycle. And I thought, I'll ride around the block with Caden here for a minute, so I got my bicycle. And we started off, we, we headed out around, around the block together. And Caden uh, and I are both competitive, and it became very apparent very quickly that Caden would love to beat Dad. And so he was pedaling as hard as he could to get in, in front of me, uh, and I would, I would devastate him real quick. I would make a revolution or two you know, on the cranks, and I'd be right in front of him. But I was kind of toying with him for a second, giving him uh, the temporary pleasure of potentially beating Dad. We, we, we jockeyed like this all the way around the block until we got about three-quarters of the way home, five, six, seven houses from our driveway. We're closing in. And I thought, hey, good dads swallow their pride, and they let their sons win the bike race around the block. And so I slowed down, and Caden passed me on my right-hand side. And as he passed me, he turned and looked over his shoulder with the greatest beam on his face. And when he turned his head, he turned the rest of his body. And what he did was he put that rear peg right in my front wheel. And friends, what that did is it stopped me on a dime. It shattered, it shattered the carbon fork on my bicycle and it sent me on a trip over the handlebars, a trip I don't ever want to take again. But here's the point. You will always move in the direction your eyes are looking. Where are you looking? Are your eyes fixated on the things of earth, the treasure of earth, or are your eyes fixated on treasure in heaven, things that cannot be destroyed, by moth and rust, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Wherever you look, whatever you have fixed your eyes on, the rest of you will move behind. It's no wonder Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Let me close this morning, friends, by just giving you a few diagnostic questions. How can you discern whether or not your treasures are the things of earth or the things of heaven? Whether or not your heart is tethered to temporary treasure or heavenly treasure? And when you go to the doctor for a particular ailment, one of the first things a doctor does is I look out and I see a few of you physicians here this morning. One of the first things that a physician does is they begin to ask you questions. Those are diagnostic questions. Does it hurt here? Can I press here? What about there? Uh, you know, what have you been uh, eating over the last 24 hours? Have you run a temperature? And these are diagnostic questions. And so here are some good diagnostic questions to help you discern if your heart is attached to earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. You might want to jot these down. First, what are the things that occupy your thoughts most? What are the things that occupy your thoughts most? Maybe your daydreams. That'll be real revealing of where your treasure is. Secondly, what are the things that you're continually drawn to? What are the things that you're continually drawn to? One of the best ways to know what you're continually drawn to is to pull out your checkbook register. Where do you spend your time 
Where do you spend your money? Look at your calendar. Look at your checkbook register. What are the things that you're continually drawn to? What are the things that you worry and fret over most? You know, it's interesting when we turn the page into Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to speak extensively about worry. Everything that we worry about just reveals a place where our heart is connected to the things of earth. Why do you worry about what you'll eat and what you'll drink? Why do you worry about tomorrow? Who of you can add a day to your life by worrying about tomorrow? What are the things that you worry and fret over most? What are the things that you fear losing the most? What do you fear losing the most? What are some things that you think you can't be happy without? What are some things that you think you can't be happy without? I've got about five or six other questions there. I would direct you to my manuscript, which should hopefully be on the website in the next handful of days, and you can look at those there. Those are some good diagnostic questions for you to help you discern whether your heart is tethered to the things of earth, temporary treasures, or whether it is bound to the things of heaven, eternal treasures. Jim Elliott will close with this this morning in his diary, penned these words, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose.